Welcome to Of Slippers and Spindles. I'm Cassie. And I'm Drew. This is a podcast all about fairy tales and fairy tale retellings. Each month, we choose a different tale and discuss books, movies, and other media based on that story. This month, we are talking about the wonderful Wizard of Oz, and today's episode is about the 1939 film starring Judy Garland. But first, how are you today, Drew? I am doing pretty well. How are you? I'm doing okay. Okay. I am prepping for a showcase with my monologue students that I've been teaching for the past nine weeks. Oh, cool. And uh, today I was missing a bunch of kids, and we were just running through what we're going to do for our showcase next week. And so we finished it in about half an hour, and we still had an hour and a half of class left. Oh, wow. (laughs) So we just played a bunch of theater games for an hour and a half, and it reminds me how much I've missed playing theater games. So that was fun. Did you play Zip Zap Zop? We did play Zip Zap Zop. Apparently, there's some uh, trauma with the kids associated with not the game that I know called Zip Zap Zop, but another game that another local theater teacher calls Zip Zap Zop that is much more complicated and terrifying apparently what (laughs) so i had to reassure them that my version is relatively simple yeah should not be that complicated no wow wow well we did want to start with a reminder of the announcements that we made in last week's episode about our new merchandise which is now available and our new patreon we're so excited to have both of these things for you I uh, took my notes for this episode in my Rocketbook notebook. Ooh, fancy. Which is, yeah, it's like a reusable notebook. They're not sponsoring us. It's just one of the (laughs) perks that you can get from Patreon, depending on what level you pledge at, is access to our very snarky notes. Yes. And so I wrote mine (laughs) using my Rocketbook so that they're much easier to upload and hopefully easier to read. I tried to have good handwriting. Yeah, I type all of my notes, so you'll be able to read them. You're going to get all of my Peter Pan notes because I saved those because I figured, you know, I'm passionate about Peter Pan. So people might be interested in some of those notes, as well as all of the notes going forward. You'll get a free bookmark every month that I'm going to design for you. You'll get... The most exciting thing to me is this book club that we are introducing. This month, our first book will be The Bone Spindle by Leslie Vetter. So we will, all of our patrons and us, we will all read the book and we'll get on a Zoom call and and chat about it. And I am really excited about that. Yeah. And moving forward, you guys will get some say in the books that we choose to read Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. um, our book group. We have a list of books that we are hoping to get to on the podcast, and so those we probably won't do for the book group because we're planning on recording an episode of them. Right. But we jokingly said in the last episode that the book club might read My Wizard of Oz a novel. There's no pressure on that, but I did go through and do like a real quick cleanup edit of it in anticipation of maybe people wanting to read it. So no pressure, but you can if you want. And I'll share it and talk about it. I'm very bad about pumping myself up. I always have the attitude of like, you know, if you want to, it's fine. You can. It's okay. But you don't have I'll to. I'll pump it's you fine up. if you don't want Let's to. Let's do it. Let's do it. But <laughs> I think our our book club books will be chosen by the book club. We've chosen the first one because we record in advance. So uh, we had to pick one for the first one. And so uh, I'm going to vote for your Wizard of Oz novel. And we'll see if everybody else does too. No pressure. Fantastic. Yeah. And also I wanted to mention that 
Our Patreon is super cheap. It's like a dollar or three dollars. It's very inexpensive to to join in with us. So yeah, we're excited. Yeah, we didn't really have a lot of like costs that we need to cover from the Patreon, but Patreon seems to be a really good place to build a stronger community mm-hmm. of uh, listeners like you. And so that's really the goal and really what we are going for. And there are some costs, some uh, a few costs. So this will there are a few help costs. cover that. There help are keep us things going. that we are we're going to cover, and we'll be very transparent about how that money is being used. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so we'd love to have your support, and you can also buy merch because the merch is really cool. Drew's designing it all, and is awesome, and I want everything. Ah, uh, thank you. It's fun. It's so much fun for me. I'm so excited to like be growing in this way. So. Uh, thank you for anybody who has already joined. Like I said, we record these in advance, so we know this is launching, but it's not launching for like another two weeks. So we're excited to see how this all opens up. Now, Cassie, this is a terrible transition, but I wanted to tell you about some of the items I picked up in a bookstore in Nashville this week, because last time you visited a bookstore, I was super interested in what books you picked up. So I thought you might want to hear what I picked up. I always love a good book haul. Yeah. So I got a really cool copy of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz with a really cool cover. I got The Book Thief, which I know is one of your favorite books. Yes, it's one of my favorites. Yes. I got East by Edith Patel. How do you say her name? I say it Patel Patel, because no one's ever told me that's wrong. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I got that because I figure eventually we're going to get to that book somehow. And I also got the 70th anniversary DVD set of The Wizard of Oz starring Judy Garland. And this DVD set is gorgeous. It has like all kinds of bonus features. It has like all of the old silent films that came out before the 1939 film. And like The Dreamer of Oz, which is about L. Frank Baum's backstory. Like It is amazing. I will post pictures on the Instagram because it is really cool and really pretty. That sounds amazing. I also want to know what edition of The Book Thief you got, just out of curiosity. I have no idea. It's already on the shelf, but I can let you know. Is it the anniversary edition or is it the one with like the dominoes on the cover? It's the dominoes. It's the domino cover. Yeah. Is that good? That's the classic US cover. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Um, There's... A really cool cover that's the European cover that is Death and Liesl Dancing, which I own, and I own the Domino cover, and then the anniversary cover that came out is, the anniversary edition of The Book Thief is one of the most beautiful books I've ever seen. Ooh. And it's particularly impactful once you've read the book and you understand like what all the de- design elements are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we probably won't ever talk about The Book Thief on this podcast it's because I don't think even I can uh, make that be a fairy tale. Mm, Yeah, it would be a bit of a stretch. A bit. Let's talk, though, about the 1939 film of The Wizard of Oz, one of the most iconic pieces of cinema in the last hundred years. If anyone is annoyed about how often we say the word iconic, this may not be the episode to listen to because talk about iconic all the way through. I love this movie. I grew up watching this movie. I... As I mentioned before, I played a member of the Lollipop Guild when I was 11, and I played the Scarecrow when I was a junior in high school, which was like on my bucket list of roles to play. So I am very fond of this movie. What what is your, can you remind us of your experience with this one? Yeah, so I was watching this and my husband came down and he walked in and he goes, ugh, I don't like this one. What? 
I know. It's fine. This was apparently one of the few, like, VHS options at his grandparents. And so he kind of has, like, that memory associated with it of, like, being forced to watch it when he was at his grandparents. And I think he watched it too young and it, like, scared him or something. Oh, we all were scared the first time we watched it. I know, right? He said that and he's like, oh, I don't like this. And I had to take a moment and go, I don't know exactly what my precise emotions about this movie are because there's so much history attached to it. I know. Literally, my first note was, where do we even start? There's so much history and lore and fun facts. Like, this could be a five-hour episode, honestly. Yeah, and the thing for me is... (laughs) It won't be. It won't be that long. But the thing for me is, I kind of feel about this movie the same way that I feel about the musical Oklahoma, almost. Okay, It's not necessarily one of my favorites. Like, it's not really one of my go-tos. I will sit down and watch it if it's on. And I recognize how important it is Mm -hmm. in the history of its medium. Mm -hmm. So, like, Oklahoma is an incredibly important musical in the history of musical theater. The Wizard of Oz is an incredibly important film in the history of film. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of nostalgia for me attached to the story because I was in it when I was young, because I have a lot of good memories associated with being in it. Yeah. And so it's really hard for me to objectively state exactly how I feel about it. I think it's a very good adaptation of this book. I think it makes a lot of very smart adaptive choices. I think it also inadvertently creates its own new set of issues in a couple areas. Which but, I'm sure we will get into. Oh, we will. Because I'm going to talk about it a lot. But it also is like the driving force behind this novel that I wrote, which I am very proud of. Because that novel is the first novel that I ever finished on my own. Yeah. And so. That's a big deal. I, like it's it's a project that I'm very proud of. And it wouldn't exist without this movie and this story. And so because of that, this movie is very important to me. Is it one that I revisit over and over again? No, it's not. Yeah. But it does hold a very special place in my heart, and it does mean a lot to me. I understand that. That makes sense. I'm sure I have movies like that. I can't think of them off the top of my head, but I'm sure I do. For me, this is a movie. I watch this movie every 4th of July. This is like my americana movie it it started because i tried to watch the music man one fourth of july and couldn't find it anywhere and so i ended up watching the wizard of oz and now i watch the wizard of oz every fourth of july i watch 1776 i will pick the wizard of oz over 1776 (laughs) every second of every minute of every hour of every day 1776 has mr feeney in it okay (laughs) this is judy garland in it that's that's valid that's fair the version that I watched is the version that's on HBO Max. Okay. And it has it's it was like a re-release of of the thing. It's got a really sweet dedication uh card at the beginning. Oh, where that's it basically part of the thanks. Original movie. Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. It would be. Yeah, the the dedication card that is at the top of this movie is a really sweet dedication to all of the people who have loved the story for the past 40 years and have kept it alive. Yeah, I I wrote it down because I wanted to read it because I love it so much. Yeah, it was a really, really lovely just dedication to the power of fans and fandom. Yeah, it says, For nearly 40 years, this story has given faithful service to the young in heart and time 
has been powerless to put its kindly philosophy out of fashion. To those of you who have been faithful to it in return, and to the young in heart, we dedicate this picture. Which is beautiful. And it's amazing that, like, that sentiment continues mm, 90 years later? 80? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I can't do math, especially 80 when years. years are involved. 82, 83, something like that. My brain goes, we are- oh, yeah, 1939. <laughs> that was 60 years ago. Oh, yeah. We are literary people. We are not math people. (laughs) (laughs) Especially with calendars. Yeah. Um, But I think one of the smartest things that this movie does in terms of adapting the book is, Mm -hmm. should we say we're not a spoiler-free podcast? We're not a spoiler-free podcast. I feel like at this point, if you don't don't know (laughs) this movie and that it's all a dream in this movie, like, I I don't know what you're doing here. But, (laughs) But I think that it's really important to to look at the choices that were made to show us Kansas and to show us the mm-hmm. world that Dorothy's coming from before we send her to Oz. Cause in the book, we hardly get anything. She's off to Oz on like page four, but here we spend like a solid 15 minutes of the opening mm-hmm. in Kansas with Dorothy. And we're setting up a conflict and it's easy to say like the, Oh, it was all a dream trope is cliche and tired but you have to remember that this movie was one of the first ones doing it yeah yeah exactly like this is where that started in a lot of ways like yes alice in wonderland the book was all a dream at the end but this movie like that would have been a, a big twist for the audience watching and i think that they do it well if you're going to do the it was a dream all along you need to take the time before the dream to set up the parallels. So here we have the three farmhands who are the same actors who play the Scarecrow Tin Man and Lion. And you can see how their characters and their relationship with Dorothy influence the people they become to her and Oz. You have Miss Gulch, who is the Wicked Witch of the West. And you can see how her relationship with Dorothy in Kansas influences the way that she interacts with this character in Oz. Interestingly, the 1925 silent film also does the farmhand thing, but very differently. Because in that version, well, first of all, the movie's plot is wild and bears a very little resemblance to the actual story. uh, Outside of, like, the existence of Dorothy, the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, and the Lion. But Oz is not a dream. And so when Dorothy travels to Oz, the three farmhands go with her. And there they end up disguising themselves as a scarecrow and as a tin man and as a lion. And and the, the scarecrow and the tin man are both like um, romantically interested in Dorothy as well. And she doesn't end up with any of them. She ends up with a prince named Prince Kind, who is from Oz, because she's revealed to be the lost princess of Oz and, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cassie stuck her tongue out because she hates that trope. But it was probably not, it was not nearly as prevalent in most likely not yeah in movies and and books and stuff back then but i thought that was really interesting that like the farmhands have been done before but very differently very differently um but i really like this touch and i really like that this opening sequence it very strongly shows us dorothy's personality yes and her clash with the world that she lives in So she has this whole thing. She's coming home from school, presumably, with her dog Toto, who's gotten into Miss Gulch's yard and has chased her cat and has bitten Miss Gulch. 
And so Dorothy is like running home. And this for her is a huge crisis. Like she's trying to get anybody else, any of the adults to listen to her about the unfairness of the situation. But they are all concerned with an incubator is broken and they need to save the chicks. There's a storm coming and they need to make sure that the animals are safe. And it's this really great classic child versus adult clash where what's happening in the child's world is all important to them. But from the adult's perspective, it's a it's a minimal kind of insignificant thing right. because there are bigger problems that the child doesn't understand. And they do a really good job of of not painting either party as in the wrong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's definitely this clash of priorities. Yeah. And like what they're finding to be important in this moment. Yeah, that's a very well spoken like way of explaining why this Kansas scene works so well. I just to like rewind to the very beginning. I really love the opening shot. I know this is super basic and I don't know if it's intentional, but it's Dorothy and Toto like running down the road and it's the same like framed the same way as we're eventually going to see them when they first start down the yellow brick road, which I think is such an interesting parallel that I don't think a lot of people catch. Yeah, and it's also very um one of the few like terms for my English class that has like planted itself in my head and I will always remember is in Medeus Ray, which means in the middle of the action. And this movie does a really good job at starting us in the oh, middle of yes. yeah. you see Dorothy and Toto running and Dorothy's like, come on, we have to get away from her. We have to, you know, and it immediately draws you in because you're going, who are you running away from? What happened? What's the story? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it immediately hooks you into this world. And so Miss Gulch comes and she has a, an oh, order from the sheriff. Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm so sorry. I'm jumping. I apologize. It's okay. It's okay. I'm I'm happy happy to jump, but we cannot jump over over the rainbow. <laughs> because first Oh yeah, first okay, Dorothy's yes, going to sing song. Over the Rainbow, which do you think this is the first ever musical theater type I want song? Because this is 4 or 5 4 years before Oklahoma even comes out. This is before Oklahoma. There were musical th- theater shows in the format that we're used to before this but i would have to look at them there may be some but they're not like they're not well known not iconic ones yeah like i know showboat was big before this movie but i don't really know any of the music from i don't either (laughs) i should but i don't and so it might be it's definitely i think the first really well-known one yeah, I, I just, I, that thought occurred to me as I was watching it. And famously, of course, this song was almost cut, but thank God they kept it. It's a beautiful song. It's so good. It's so good. And I was really taken with Toto during this song. The way that he like responds and interacts with Judy as Dorothy is really, really sweet. And I'm sure that having the dog on set was a problem a lot of times, but... At least they got this this shot of her sitting there with him and responding with him. It's it's beautiful. Yeah, and it's this lovely moment where she kind of communicates like how she doesn't feel like she fits in with this life. Exactly. I wish that they had enhanced that conflict a little bit more. I wish that it felt a little bit more like the confrontation with Miss Galch about Toto was the final straw that pushed her to running away. Yeah. And not that it felt like the only reason driving her running away. But that's a little thing. Yeah, yeah. So now we meet Miss Gulch. But so Miss 
Yeah, Miss Gulch shows up and she's got an order from the sheriff to take Toto because Toto has bitten her. Which, I mean, listen, I'm not going to say that Miss Gulch handled the situation well because she didn't and she seems like kind of a rude person. However, Toto gets into her garden all the time. Yeah. Which is her property. And Dorothy and the Gales don't do anything to stop him. And he bit her. If someone else's dog bit me, I would be livid. Like, I I know she's the bad guy, but I kind of get, like, where but she's I, coming I'm from to begin of, with. I think they help a little bit by having Aunt M kind of go off on her about, like, just because you own half the town. Yes, yeah. Like, so there's there's an implication that Miss Gulch might be overreacting to this and might be blowing it out of proportion. But the the case that is presented to us right. is a valid case. If you own a dog and it bites a person, like, that dog gets taken away from you. Like, that's just, it's a danger to society. And, like, that's just how it it works. It is surprising, though, that, like, Toto does not seem like an aggressive dog with any other person or character or inanimate moving object or animal that we meet in this movie. Yeah, and so I, I feel like that's another place where they maybe could have added a little bit more of this clash with, like, Miss Gulch making this claim and then Dorothy trying to say that didn't happen. Yeah, or even, like, will you try to hit him with a broomstick or something like that, you know, yeah. show that Miss Gulch was being aggressive towards him and so it was, like, reactive on Toto's part. I think that would make yeah. a little more sense. But they they have to obey, so they give Toto to Miss Gulch, who brought a basket to carry him in, but not one that latches. Yes. <laughs> and then he jumps out of the basket as she rides away on her bicycle. I love that she rides a bicycle in Kansas. I think that, oh, yeah. that Iconic. as yeah. the parallel uh, of to the, the witch the on the broomstick, because it's a really yeah. great real world way to get the same sense of movement. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it works really well. Yeah. I also think this is interesting that they kind of give Toto a purpose. Like in the yes. original novel, Toto's just kind of there. His only real purpose is to get Dorothy away from the balloon. Like that's the only thing that I could come up with that like Toto does that actually influences something within the story. So I like yeah. that this kind of gives us a reason to have Toto around to begin with. Exactly. He manages to run away and he comes back to Dorothy and that's why Dorothy's like, oh, we have to get away from here because otherwise they'll find out you're gone and they'll come back and they'll get you. So she runs away and she meets Professor Marvel, mm -hmm. who is this traveling fortune teller-esque character. I am genuinely delighted by Professor Marvel in this movie. I love this scene where he uses his humbuggery to get Dorothy to do the right thing and go home. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that that Professor Marvel ultimately sends Dorothy home and then she will spend the rest of the movie trying to get to the wizard to send her home. Yes. Cool parallel, however. However. This is one of my biggest issues with this movie. Okay. Is that Dorothy's whole like arc of growth is figuring out that home is where she wants to be. Uh-huh. But she reaches that conclusion here, 15 minutes into the movie. Hmm. And then she gets taken away by a tornado. And I wish that her journey to Oz played a part in her realizing that home is where she wants to be. I almost wish that Professor Marvel still tried to get her to go home, but she decided, like, no, I'm not going to go home. I want to run away still. Like that there was still some kind of question when she got whisked off to Oz and it was going through what she goes through in Oz that leads her to realize I do want to go home 
to Aunt Em and Uncle Henry. Okay. I have, a, I have a few thoughts. My first thought is Dorothy's entire journey, like the whole time she wants to get back to Kansas. She wants to go home. So that's not really the lesson that she learns because basically as soon as she meets Glinda, she's like, okay, how how do I go back? Right? So yeah, that like you said, like you would have to change a lot. Like, I don't know why she would go to the wizard if she gets to Oz and is like, this is awesome. I never want to go home. So then why do we send her down the yellow brick road? That's fair. I just feel like her her arc is completed very early on and then she doesn't really have much else, like another place to go. She doesn't learn a lot from the journey through Oz. So like Dorothy's final lesson that she learns at the end, like when Glinda's like, or, or the Tin Man's like, what have you learned, Dorothy? She says, if I ever go looking for my heart's desire again, I shouldn't look any further than my own backyard because if it isn't there i never really lost it to begin with and i don't understand that lesson <laughs> i have a problem with that lesson i have a problem with that message at the end yeah i don't i don't love that i get the idea that it's like for dorothy home is a warm and loving place and yes she had this this one issue with miscommunication with aunt Em and uncle henry and toto got taken away all that but I don't love this sentiment that like everything that you ever want or need is right in front of you always. Because that's very often not true. Yeah. Yeah. You should go out and see the world. Yeah, and her whole thing about like, I shouldn't dream about, you know, anything bigger than where I come from. Like that's, that's not a good message. Yeah. And, and I also don't see how like Dorothy learned that lesson at all. Right. It doesn't seem to match up with, with her story. So I guess, I don't know, I think I think if there was just more of this sense of urgency to get back home, because, like, it is there, but I think it could be enhanced, because sometimes she seems to for, forget that that's what she wants. I just think that, like, those final lines and that being the lesson she learned, like, that line is just kind of there at this point. Like, I don't think anybody watches this movie and takes away that moral. Do you know what I mean? I hope not. Like, <laughs> like to me, it's just, it's almost like a white noise lesson that she learns at the end. Like, okay, she's going to, she's going to say something and this is what they come up with. And it sounded nice. Yeah. Regardless though, she goes to the wagon with Professor Marvel and he has her close her eyes and he goes through her basket so that he can like convince her to, to go back home to her family. And as she's going, the storm is coming in. And we have this cyclone and everybody else has taken shelter. Aunt Em was frantically looking for Dorothy until people were like, no, you have to take shelter. The storm is here. Okay, uh, this is my biggest issue in this entire mo movie. I cannot believe that all five of them who, who love Dorothy so much got into the cellar without really looking for her. Like Aunt Em was the only one shouting for Dorothy. Yeah. And all four of those men were just like, nope. We can't worry about Dorothy right now. We got to get into the shelter. I know the cyclone was close, but we didn't see any of them make any effort to look for this 16-year-old girl who they can't find. No, and let me explain something to you. I grew up in central Illinois, uh -huh. which is a uh, part of Tornado Alley. Yes. And so we had tornadoes come through every spring. Okay. And I got to tell you something about the attitude of plains people mm. towards <laughs> cyclones. <laughs> It's very last minute that you would go into the cellar, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. There's a classic story of my family 
where like the week after my little brother was born, a tornado came through in the middle of the day. My mom was still at the hospital with my little brother. So she was hunkered down in a hallway holding him when the alert came. My older brother and I were at school. He was in kindergarten. I was in preschool. And so we were with our classes, you know, hunkering down. My father was trying to finish mowing the lawn before the storm hit. Yeah. <laughs> and then trying to get the lawnmower returned to the rental place. Because if he didn't return it by a certain point, he was going to have to pay a late fee. So even <laughs> though there was literally like tornadoes on the ground, my right. father was driving to the rental place to return the lawnmower. <laughs> I, I understand this completely. And I'm sure that this applies to these characters. However... Dorothy literally arrives as soon as they get into the cellar. And it's very frustrating to me that, like, none of these men took a moment to, like, okay, let's run through the house real quick. Because if they had, they would have found Dorothy and everything would have been fine. But then there would be no story. Oh, that's a line from Peter Pan. To quote one of our favorite movies. Yes. Um, I do want to mention that the cyclone effects are incredible. They are just, like... yes amazing especially when you consider that this is 1939 like go back and watch just just watch the cyclone and just pay attention to the like all of the details of things flying away and the cyclone moving in the background which is amazing considering that the backgrounds are all like matte paintings or or like backdrops so like it's this massive thing of fabric also when i was in the wizard of oz when we were all climbing into the cellar i flew away so i like got lifted up into the air and the actor playing Hickory and the Tin Man like ran back and like grabbed my hand and was like trying to pull me down into the cellar. But the window was too strong. So he let go and I got to fly away into the wings. And it was so much fun. fun. It got applause every night. It was it was amazing. Everybody loves a good fly gallery effect. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because we did the whole thing. We had Glinda in the bubble and Miss Gulch and the witch flying by. And I think Dorothy who was played by my sister. I think she flew a couple points as well. We did the whole thing. It was a lot of fun. So we've got Dorothy in the house. She goes to the window. The window blows in, hits her in the head. She falls on the bed. Mm -hmm. And the next thing we know, she's up and she's looking out the window and she's up inside the cyclone and she's seeing all of these people passing by Mm -hmm. inside the cyclone. She's like a couple people in a boat. A cow. You always have to have a cow when there's a tornado. The cow. Mm -hmm. And then you see Miss Gulch on her bicycle who then turns into the Wicked Witch Witch on the Broomstick. Of the East. Because you can see the ruby slippers if you look for them. And I just love this sound and music and visual choices for the Oz reveal Uh, after the house lands. Because in the cyclone, the music is so busy, uh right? You have that really iconic, everybody knows the song. You recognize it as soon as you hear it. And then the house lands and we immediately go to full silence. Mm -hmm. There's no incidental music at all. We're fully silent as Dorothy. Everything's been in grayscale. Mm -hmm. And so you have Dorothy in complete silence picking up Toto. There's no dialogue going to the door. And then as she opens the door, we reveal the world of color beyond. And then the very light, beautiful music of Oz starts to play. It's such a good reveal. It's so good. And it's so wonderful that they chose to do that reveal in one shot, right? It's a kind of a quote-unquote special effect where the house is painted like sepia and they have Judy Garland's stand-in wearing a sepia-toned dress. So she's the one who steps forward and opens the door. And then Judy Garland, dressed in color, steps 
forward into Munchkinland. It's so good. It's so good. And I love that, like, you have the domed houses, you have the river, like, they, they brought those elements from the book here into Munchkinland. They disregard the whole thing about, like, Munchkins love the color blue, which is fine because they're just showing off every color that they can at this point. Right. Like, Technicolor wasn't brand new when this movie came out, but it was new enough. Right. And they really used this movie to showcase it. They actually yeah. changed some things most iconically the shoes which Mm -hmm. in the book are silver and they made them red to show off the color and then the wicked witch her skin yes not green in the book there's no mention of her skin being green they made her skin green for the movie to show off look what we can do with our technicolor i just think the choice to make the ruby slippers ruby instead of silver shoes was the single best choice they made in putting this story to film like the ruby slippers are so Again, iconic. And they look gorgeous. Like, the way they sparkle is beautiful. And just silver would not have popped coming out of a grayscale world to have, like, the Mm -hmm. most important item in this world, which is very interesting from a literary perspective. But when you're trying to show off your colors, you need that red. And nothing else in Oz is red, really. So to have the slippers right there like you see them all the time like it's constant they're sparkling and they're they're showing off this like technology it's just gorgeous and against the blue of like dorothy's socks because she's got baby blue socks to match her dress Mm -hmm. and the yellow of the road but it's gorgeous no it is and it's it's such a a stunning visual moment yeah to see her emerge into munchkin land I said I had a fun fact oh, yes. for this movie that I was really excited to share. Okay. There were like 250 munchkins in this movie. Mm-hmm. And they just kind of set out the call for people with dwarfism to come be part of this movie. And one of them was a woman named Carolyn Granger. Yes. And she was from Chardon, Ohio, which is where my mom grew up. Oh. And she was occasionally my mom's babysitter. Stop. She was my mom's best friend's babysitter regularly. And so every once in a while when my mom was over at her best friend's house, uh, she would be babysat by <gasps> Carolyn Granger. That is so cool. Did she play one of the, like, any of the- I don't know who she played. I don't know that she was a prominent yeah. munchkin. But my note when I was writing this was, my mom has some connection to one of the munchkins, but I need to verify that to provide any more details. Because all <laughs> I remembered was, like, this vague story. So I called yeah. my mom today and I asked her. And she's like, yeah, she was my babysitter. That <laughs> I was is like, so cool, cool. Awesome. Wow. And uh, she couldn't remember her name at first. And so she's like, well, I'll call Candy, who is her best friend, and and just check what the name is. So we hung up and I immediately searched Munchkin Chardon, Ohio. Oh. And this is the name that popped up. And so then she called me back a few minutes later. And I was like, is it Carolyn Granger? She's like, yeah, how'd you figure that out? It's like, well, I can use Google. Um, yeah. <laughs> but no, so that's my my fun little connection to this which that is so cool puts me a few degrees of separation like away from judy garland so yeah (laughs) yeah and everybody else in this movie um margaret hamilton also from ohio she was born in cleveland yeah so that's my that's my wizard of Oz fun fact that's that's really cool that's a good one um so now we meet glinda coming down in a bubble yeah this is one of the biggest changes that they made in adapting this story is that they combined the character of Glinda with the Good Witch of the North. Mm-hmm. I understand why they did this. 
it makes sense to not have Dorothy take that whole like second journey down oh, to the south to 100%. find Brenda. Yeah. However, choosing to combine these two characters does make some of Glinda's actions highly questionable. Okay. In this scene. Okay, I have I have so many thoughts and notes. My first thing is I wrote Enter Glinda, Good Witch of the North. For why? Just let her be from the South. It has caused so much cultural confusion that Glinda is from the North in the movie, but from the South in the books. Like, I I totally get why Glinda is here so that she can be there at the end. Parallels, not introducing a new character at the last minute. Got it. Totally makes sense. Just let her be from the South. Yes. It doesn't matter that she's from the North. No. Yeah. Next note. Why is she not Aunt M? The musical stage version changed this, has corrected this, and the actress that plays Aunt M also plays Glinda. Uncle Henry also plays the guard in the Emerald City. Why did they not think of that for this movie? I don't know. I kind of like, though, that Aunt M and Uncle Henry aren't there. Because she's trying so hard to get back to them. Oh, uh, okay. That's so it fair. doesn't it does not bother me that Aunt Em and Uncle Henry do not have a parallel character in Oz. Yeah, because if she was Aunt Em, she would be like, Oh, Aunt Em, why are you here? Right. Well, but she doesn't do that with the others, but They're the others disguised. are not as human as she is. Yeah. 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 Okay, that's fair. So personally that doesn't bug me. Okay, so next let's talk about I have a couple uh, a couple things, a couple directions we could go here. Uh, let, let me do the easy one first. Let yeah. me do the easy one before we get into her questionable decisions. Uh-huh. My next note is, God, that dress is iconic. What a choice. It is amazing. Anytime yeah. anybody for the rest of history has had a, a giant dress, they are compared to Glinda. Oh, yeah. And it is amazing. I think it was used in another movie previously, but this is the one it's famous for. And then I, I went on a rant about, like, the visuals in this movie are just so stellar. I know, like, it was a rough process for this movie. They went through many directors and many writers and many designers and, and all that. But at the end of the day, where they landed is is so good. Each and every character design is so distinct that, I mean, these are some of the most recognizable character silhouettes and designs in the history of the world. Like, it's amazing. And like, even like the mayor of Munchkin City with like his hat and his big sleeves and his the like flowers on his shoes. I, I just think the design elements of this movie, where they landed was perfect. Yeah. Nobody feels like an afterthought. Exactly. This, like even again, the Munchkin council members who don't do yes. very much, but they all feel like a lot of care and time was put into these costumes and these design decisions. The coroner's hat and the lullaby league and the lollipop guild. Like they're all so intentional. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about Glinda. So my first note about Glinda is that, you know, she appears and she asks Dorothy, are you a good witch or are you a bad witch? And then later she says only bad witches are ugly. And I'm like, okay, okay. first of all, Ruth, Cassie, this know, is all over TikTok. Every time I scroll onto a TikTok and it's the start of, are you a good witch or a bad witch? I scroll so fast because I'm so sick of this. I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction, though. Because okay, the, please. The, the idea only bad witches are ugly is a problematic of course. idea, you know? Of course it is. It's Cinderella and the ugly stepsisters. Right. And it's, it's like, if this is all over fairy tales. And, I don't feel like yeah. that sentence needs to be here. And I wish if it was, they had done more with it. Like explored some 
kind of idea that doing bad things or evil things like changes your appearance. Twists you. Twists yeah, you yeah, instead yeah, yeah. of just making it like, oh, well, you're ugly, so of course you're bad. Mm-hmm. So like that's that's like yeah, a little I, bit of a point. But you're right. Like that gets harped on all the time. But here's the thing. This entire sequence with Glinda and Dorothy and the Witch of the West feels so sinister on Glinda's part if you watch it in the right light. Because like here is this <laughs> you're, child, you're not wrong. this she's stranger like smiling the whole time. She's, she's so time, unalarmed. But she is putting Dorothy into this dangerous situation. Like she is using Dorothy to antagonize the Witch of the West. We talked about how in the book, the Witch of the East shrivels up into dust because of the sun. Like there's some line about it. And the shoes are left over and the Witch of the West is never here. She's never in that scene in the book. And the shoes are given to Dorothy just as spoils of war. And the Witch of the North tells her they are magically, they have some kind of strong charm on them, but we don't know what the shoes do. Well, we know from the end of this movie that Glinda knows exactly what the shoes do. And we know that the Witch of the West is here and she wants the shoes. And Glinda's like, yeah, go get them. They're right over there. And then all of a sudden, Glinda has put the shoes on Dorothy's feet. Yep. And then is telling Dorothy, hey, don't take these shoes off. They're real powerful and she wants them bad. You've made an enemy. And I'm like, Dorothy's made an enemy? You no, 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 no. You have made Dorothy an enemy. Also, she tells Dorothy not to take the shoes off, but we later learn that they literally cannot come off as long as Dorothy is alive. Yeah. So, like, it definitely feels, it's like written on the page that the wizard is using Dorothy as a pawn to accomplish what he's not, like, brave enough to accomplish himself but it definitely feels like glinda is doing the same thing oh i agree with you i think and the most interesting adaptations of the wizard of oz put the witches all on the same level so they call themselves good and they call themselves wicked but they're all in this like morally gray version basically what i'm talking about is emerald city the tv series which i wish we could cover but it's like a whole season so we don't have time you and I don't have time to sit down and watch a whole season, but it does really interesting things with the characters. And in particular, the witches are fascinating. And this movie, they, they said she's totally evil and she's totally good. And yet, and yet, and yet, because she tells to Dorothy like, Oh, it's really important to get you out of Oz as quickly as possible because now the witch wants you dead. Well, you know, a really quick, easy way to get Dorothy out of Oz is to use the shoes to send her back to Kansas because you can do that because you know how they work. Yeah, this is the biggest. And so for her to show up at the end, for her to show up at the end and say, Oh, well, you wouldn't have believed me if I told you. Right. I bet she would have. A tornado just took her to a magical <laughs> land and a lady appeared out of a bubble. If she said, you can get home by clicking your heels together three times, I bet Dorothy would have believed her. <laughs> yeah, I I have no explanation for this. I, I just think like they, uh, they were just trying to get Dorothy down the yellow brick road as quickly as possible. Right. And I don't think that this was like an intentional thing by any means. Of course. I think it's just of course an not. Yeah. unintentional side effect of combining these two characters. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. when you have the the Witch of the North in the book who does not know what the shoes do and doesn't know how to send Dorothy home, of course she's going to send her to the more powerful right. you know, figure. But here in the movie, by having Glinda show up then again at the end... And again, they could have fixed this by just having Glinda say, I don't know what these shoes do, but I'll see if I can find out. Exactly. And then have I was her just going to say this. At the end, 
and say, oh, I realized one of the things these shoes can do. Yeah, I've learned. I've learned since then. Yeah. As it stands right now, I am 100% on board the movie Glinda as villain train. It would be so interesting to see an adaptation really lean into the idea that Glinda is manipulating Dorothy. And stay tuned, because at the end of the month, we do talk about how we would adapt the story. (laughs) So maybe check back in on that. That's not the direction I went with my novel, but it is the direction I almost went with my novel, which I will talk about when we get to that episode. I had a couple ideas floating around. I have a version I'm working on as well, so... hmm. Hmm, could be interesting. But so, yeah, so we've, again, we've got some really iconic songs in this scene with Munchkinland. So we've got Though We Welcome You to Munchkinland and Ding Dong the Witch is Dead and Follow the Yellow Brick Road. I do have a few questions about like, where does the giant lollipop go? Why does Dorothy carry a basket? Like she picks up her basket, but why? Because they came from home, so she wants to take it home. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. We have to mention, of course, famously, Margaret Hamilton was injured by the smoke elevator. Her makeup had copper in it to turn it green. And and so she (laughs) suffered some really serious burns. There were a lot Um, of burns and injuries and allergic reactions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just just getting started. Uh, Glinda has a line where she says, what a smell of sulfur. That it is so thrown away by Billy Burke as Glinda that for years I thought it was added for the musical. But she says the line, but you barely hear it. She throws it away. It's just kind of a little fun fact there. Um, And then as we head down the Yellow Brook Road, I was like writing notes and looked up and Judy Garland was already skipping. So I rewound the DVD so I could watch her like place her toe on that very tip of the spiral and start down the Yellow Brick Road from that that very you know specific point because it's just so just the visuals are so good yeah so she skips and then everybody's like yeah just follow the yellow brick road it takes you straight there it doesn't there's a fork i know what were they thinking well you're not our problem anymore thanks for freeing us from servitude like there's only one it's not like there are many forks so it's like you need a map all you needed to say was like just follow the yellow brick road at one point there's going to be a split go left yeah And I don't know where the other, maybe they just all eventually lead to the Emerald City, so it doesn't matter. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. That would make sense. But we meet the Scarecrow. My guy. In a very famous scene. So good. Some people without brains do an awful lot of talking. Great line. Ray Bolger, famously originally cast as the Tin Man, but he really wanted to play the Scarecrow because the guy who played the Scarecrow in the 1902 musical was like one of his childhood heroes and idols. So he really wanted to play the Scarecrow. So he swapped with Buddy Epson, who was cast as the Scarecrow. So Buddy Epson became the Tin Man, later had an allergic, well, not allergic. He had a reaction to the silver dust that was his makeup and he was replaced by Jack Haley. And this is actually, I think most people know that. But what you may not know is that you can still hear Buddy Epson in this movie because Ray Boulder, Jack Haley, and I think Bertlar as well all say the word wizard as wizard, right? Their accents all drop the R. But if you listen to anytime they sing, we're off to see the wizard, you can hear a man's voice saying wizard with the R. Because once they replaced Jack Haley, it was easier like and, and cost less to just have him sing his lines that like... He, were just him so he's saying if i only had a heart and any lines he had in like uh if i only had the nerve as well and the jitterbug but 
In the group songs, they kept Ebsen's track so you can still hear him. That's very fascinating. And I, I think we should do that more in Hollywood today. Two people should just be like, hey, you want to swap parts? <laughs> like, I really want your role. Do you want mine? So just let's like, just, yeah, let's just, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Nobody will have a problem with it. Casting <laughs> Obviously, it was do. not fine. <laughs> but he does a very good job. All three mm, of these actors great. Are, are great in their roles. You know, this is a great show to do if you have some kids or some actors who are like really strong physical comedy actors because there's just a lot of like fun kind of pratfall situations that you can do that you can play with Mm -hmm. with all three of them with all three yeah so we meet the scarecrow she gets him down off of his pole and they sing if i only had a brain Mm -hmm. and they head off down the yellow brick road now we're going to meet the fighting trees which i thought was interesting because in the book we meet the trees but it's on the journey to glinda's palace but we move them here and they they throw some apples at the scarecrow and dorothy in the movie here they're like voiced by very gruff angry male voices but in the musical they change them so they are sexy female trees yeah (laughs) they all wear like giant hats with leaves on them and they sing back up to if i only had a heart that's an odd choice and the crows sing back up to if i only had a brain also an odd choice so we meet the Tin Man. He is rusted in position. He can just kind of barely speak. This was a joke that I did not get as a child. It took me until I was much older when Dorothy's like, oh, he's saying oil can. And the Scarecrow's response is oil can what? Did not understand that joke as a kid. Did not get it. I have that same note. But now it's funny. It's very funny. It is funny. And I think seeing productions of the musical help because if you say the line like Ray Bolger does, he says, oil can what? But what you you should throw away the word yeah. can, so oil can what? You know, I think that helps it. But yeah, it's a, it's a great joke, but I missed it for years and years and years. Also, it is so much worse for the Tin Man to be stuck like that with the oil can sitting on a stump like two feet away from him. Right. How, well, it makes no sense for that. He, he froze like that. It makes no sense that he rusts as quickly as he does, honestly. Like, that's not really how iron works, but... That's true, but... In my mind, he's like taking out his grief on a tree and the ring comes and he's like, no, I'm just going to keep going. And that's keep, when he yeah. gets frozen. Exactly. But maybe that's just a headcanon. But they they free him and then he sings If I Only Had a Heart. And then they meet the Wicked Witch. And I really appreciate that. Did I skip something again? Yeah, sorry. No, you're okay. <laughs> the line, wherefore art thou Romeo in If I Only Had a Heart is sung by Adriana Casalotti, who is the voice of Snow White. Yes. If you I didn't know that. We'll let you get your Disney connection in. Yes. Yes. But one of the things that this movie does that I think really strengthens it as an adaptation is that they make the Witch of the West much more prominent throughout. We see yes. her periodically trying to get the shoes, trying to stop Dorothy from getting to the wizard. And this is one of the scenes where that happens. So she's with the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and the witch appears and throws fire at the Scarecrow. So what a great Uh callback that is when he said the only thing I'm afraid of is a lit match is fire. And now he's getting fire thrown at him and they have to smother the fire. Yes, yes. You did not like that there was no callback to that in the book, but the movie fixes that. Here it is. And then they continue on. And I just have to say, there are so many live birds on this set. 
I know. There are so the many that live people birds. thought that a munchkin hanged themselves for years because there's a stork in the background of one of the shots. There is no hanging munchkin. No. Urban legend. There's a stork. <laughs> Chase happened to be in the room when they're doing some kind of, of passing shot. And I think it's like the apple trees and Dorothy goes, oh, apples. And Chase is like, aren't you going to talk about the toucan that was sitting in a tree? <laughs> yeah, there's like all kinds of birds just <laughs> everywhere in this scene for some reason. And only this scene. Yeah. And there's like a big one. I know it's not a cassowary, but it looks like a cassowary. Like, <laughs> at least I hope it wasn't a cassowary because those are mean birds. But like walking through the background and it's like, it's freaky because it keeps making me think that there's another actor somewhere and there's yeah. not. It's just a bunch of birds. Yeah, there's a lot of movement behind all three of the characters throughout If I Only Had a Heart. Which, like, I think it would make more sense to do it when they're going into the forest to find the lion because then exactly. at least it feels like something else is here watching you. But so then we meet the lion. Mm -hmm. And this is this is another thing that I really appreciate is that Dorothy doesn't always do a great job of standing up for herself in this movie. But like the second somebody starts to pick on her friends. Oh, yeah. She's it's she's like ready to fight. mom friend activate. Yeah, you're right. And so here when the lion is like attacking Scarecrow and Tin Man and then like tries to attack Toto, that's when Dorothy's like, absolutely not. Yes. yes. She walks up to this lion and smacks him on the nose. <laughs> It's a great moment. It's honestly. very brave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we add the lion to the to the party. We're off to see the wizard once again. And that that is a real lion fur that he is wearing. Mm-hmm. They almost use, or I don't know if they almost use, but they considered using Leo the lion from like the MGM opening. They considered using him as the lion, but obviously they went a different route. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. But yeah. So then we're we're skipping away. Mm -hmm. And then we get, again, another thing that I like with this inclusion of the Witch of the West. Like, she is responsible for the poppies. Yes. She's got her magic crystal, which is a nice callback to the magic crystal that Professor Marvel has in Kansas. Mm -hmm. And she's using it to spy on them. And she's like, oh, that didn't work. I've got to do something else. And so she sends the poppies specifically to make Dorothy fall asleep. I like this. I think this is very smart. It reinforces the witch as a threat and gives these four characters an obstacle. Right. Because we cut, obviously, like, the giant ditch and the river and the colitis. We cut all of that. So it would have been easy to just cut the poppies as well and just let them get to the Emerald City. But I think it's important that they have something standing in their way. And it also reinforces this push and pull between Glinda and the Witch of the West. Because mm -hmm. the Witch of the West sends the poppies and Glinda saves them from the poppies. Right. And the snow counteracting the poppies actually comes from the 1902 musical version okay. of The Wizard of Oz. I thought that was super interesting that the Witch of the North does the same thing. And so for this movie, they they pulled that idea. Now we get to the Emerald City. And we're going to have the, the great moment with the, the, the guard. And the bell is out of order. But somehow he heard the bell anyway. I just, I adore that Frank Morgan plays like five parts in this yes. movie. Yeah. <laughs> so Frank Morgan is the wizard, but he's also Professor Marvel, of course, in Kansas. Like that double casting we have from everybody. But he also plays this guard at the gate. He plays the guard at the door into uh -huh. the wizard's sanctum. And I think he plays one other part. Is the guard the same one who has the coach with the horse of a different color? 
Or those two different characters. Oh, no. And he's the driver of the horse with a different color. Yeah, yeah. And I personally absolutely love this because one of my – one of the things that I find most fascinating about this story is this theatricality element Mm. to it. Mm -hmm. That the wizard is constantly putting on a show and the people of the Emerald City are constantly buying into it. Like, they want to be tricked. They want to to buy into this performance that's going on and everything is so performative. And I love having the same actor play all of these prominent roles in the Emerald City because it just plays into that. You keep going, I've seen that face before. And I think that that we've talked before about how double casting is used and the way that double casting is used really enhances, you know, some element of like it says something about what is being performed. Mm -hmm. And so for this double casting to be not just double casting, it's like quintuple casting, I think is is wonderful. I never thought about like the comparison of the double casting between Kansas and Oz compared to the double casting of Mr. Darling. And Captain Hook. Like, it's that same kind yeah, of idea of, it's like, the same idea. something from home manifests itself in this yeah. world. Yeah, absolutely. And so they're let in. They go through the Emerald City. They're all gussied up. They get polished and restuffed and, <laughs> and hair curled. And permanent, yeah. <laughs> per- like, they, they sing the song only to arrive at the gates and be told um, the wizard will not see you. Or well, they're told to wait. And this is the final song in the movie. <sighs> My note is, why does the lion get two songs and why is one of them this one? Yeah. I hate the song. I'm sure there's a reason. It's probably really just so Bert Lahr could show off. I don't like his voice in this song. I don't like the way he sings it with that like really far back in his throat closed off vibrato. We really come to a full stop. Whereas every other song has like told us something about the characters in some way. But we come to a full stop so the lion can perform yeah, the song. It feels just odd and awkward. And like, I mean, I guess it serves a little bit of a purpose. Like you see him with his confidence. And like, this is what he's going to do. But then the guard comes back and he's like, no, we're not, you're not going to see the wizard. It's not going to happen. And Dorothy starts crying about how she's never going to see Anna again. And so then the guard at the sanctum is like, I'll let you see the wizard. And so he lets them in anyway. And so they they meet the wizard. They all meet him together. Just one big head. We cut all the other uh, versions of his disguise that Cassie loves so much. Because they all seem together. And so that makes sense. Yes. This is terrifying. They do a really good job of making this very scary. Yeah. The effects are good. And, And he's really threatening. And it's interesting to me that the wizard knows what they all want, right? Yeah. Why does he know that? How does he know that? He's got spies everywhere, man. I guess, I mean, maybe. to be fair, they have been skipping down the main thoroughfare in Oz singing songs about <laughs> what they want, so. <laughs> I guess everybody knows what they want. <laughs> but I think that's a nice, like, an interesting parallel to Professor Marvel, again. Like, that he mm-hmm. he tells Dorothy things about herself that she's amazed, like, how could you know that, when in reality, like, he's just observing. And he's just like, oh, she's carrying a suitcase, so that's how I know she's running away. Right, right. Whereas here, we don't necessarily see, but I would have to go back and rewatch, but I imagine they've said something about what they want to get while they're in the Emerald City. Mm, yeah, perhaps. I would have to check. But the wizard tells them that to get what they want, they must prove themselves worthy by performing a very small task. Just bring me the broomstick of the Witch of the West. That's it. 
That's all you got to do. It's interesting that he, it, they change it. Like in the book, he very much says, go kill her. Mm-hmm. And here he's like, just bring me your broomstick. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then someone say, else is like, we'll have to, we have kill, to kill her, her to get her broomstick. And he says, bring me the broomstick. Well, I didn't tell you to kill her. So like, you don't have to, if that's the route you choose to take. Yeah. Still suspicious, man. So off we go into the haunted forest. We're going to interact with some spooks. We are not going to interact with any jitterbugs because that scene got cut from this They this cut part. the scene, but they didn't cut her line. I know. She, she says, still says, she's like, I sent, I sent a, a little insect ahead to, to like bother them. And I'm like, yeah, take the cut the line out if you're cutting the jitterbug scene. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the jitterbug scene was like fully filmed, but um, the... the Initial cut for the film came in at two hours. And so they did previews and they needed to cut 15 minutes. So that's why the jitterbug got cut and like the scarecrow's extended dance scene got cut. Uh, Although that footage still survives. But I think you couldn't cut it from like the sequence. Like it happens in the middle of a shot between Mm -hmm. two lines. I don't know. I think it would have been awkward. That's fair. But yeah, so they, they make it through the haunted forest. She sends the flying monkeys after them. They kidnap Dorothy and Toto and take them back to the castle. Did you know that you can still see the golden cap in the movie? Can you? It's not in this scene, but earlier at some point when she is at the crystal ball, you can see her holding the golden cap. Interesting. Because the monkeys in the movie are very different from the monkeys in the book. Because we never talk about the golden cap. And they just no. seem to be like purely slaves yeah they're just the minions of the witch there's none of this like three tasks it's like she just sends them to do her bidding so yes dorothy and toto are kidnapped by the witch we get the iconic once again scene of the witch trying to take the shoes away from dorothy but they spark yellow and she can't take them away as long as dorothy is alive but toto gets away and he's going to lead the scarecrow tin man and lion to the witch's castle, and then we get the Winkies. And I think it's interesting that we have just collectively forgotten that the Winkies are also green. Yes. Like, the Witch of the West being green has literally spawned a novel that spawned one of the most successful Broadway musicals in the past, like, 20 years. But the Winkies are also green hmm In this movie. hmm And I think that was really interesting because I'd forgotten it until I saw them. Yeah, we just don't don't use that. Mostly because actors who are playing the Winkies are also playing citizens of the Emerald City and like crows and trees. And they it would be complicated to put all of these people into green makeup as opposed to the witch who who can just stay in her green makeup. Uh, through the rest yeah. of the, the show. But the Winkies are like their outfits again are super iconic. The O-E-O is like amazing. <laughs> I love the Oreo joke in Wreck-It Ralph that references yeah. <laughs> the Winkies. It's so good. But the Scarecrow, Tin Man, and Lion are going to steal some Winky outfits. That's how they get into the castle. They find Dorothy and the Tin Man chops down the door and he keeps chopping even though the door is open. And that's irritated me ever since I was a child. They're going to all get together. They're running away and the witch catches them. And then she's threatening them. And then she throws the hourglass down at them. And I don't understand why she throws the hourglass. It accomplishes nothing. It, it doesn't. What really is iconic in this moment. Iconic is that she, again, throws fire at the Scarecrow. And so Dorothy grabs a bucket of water that happens to be nearby and throws it and hits the witch. And the witch melts. And melts her. 
Which which which? If you know that you melt with water, why, do why you would you a, have a bucket, a bucket of water? Of water? Nearby? Well, luckily we have a movie and a musical that explains that. It's true, but <laughs> at least in the book, like Dorothy is doing dishes in the kitchen when she gets mad and throws. Yeah, the water. yeah, yeah. That's true. I again, I mentioned this in the intro that no one that I know of has ever explained why water melts the witch. Nope, it's just it's just a thing. I will say this scene with the melting does not bother me as much in the movie as it does in the book. Because in the book, it's like, oh, it's so convenient that the one thing you threw when you got mad enough to throw something was the one thing that could defeat her. Whereas right. here, it's like, the scarecrow is on fire. She's not throwing a bucket of water at the witch. She's trying to douse the fire, and the witch gets in the way. Exactly. And gets gets melted by the water. Or is, like, behind the scarecrow. And so the water yeah. passes through the scarecrow, and it's hits the witch, and that's what melts her away. And Dorothy is, like, immediately horrified. Yeah. And then we just like you killed her, and she's like, yeah. I, I, didn't "I didn't mean to. to. I didn't know that was going to happen." And the Winkies are like, "Hail to Dorothy! The Wicked Witch is dead. They are free." Yep, and they give her the broomstick, and they head back to Oz, and they present it to the wizard, and he's like, "Nah, I'm not going to do what I said I was going to do." And again, Dorothy, on behalf of her friends, gets angry, and she you know, starts yelling at him and Toto runs away and finds the curtain. Yes. And pulls the curtain aside and reveals this this man. And I love that he like tries so hard to keep the deception up even <laughs> when he's been so ridiculous to me. Like he's still like into the microphone. He's like, I am the great and powerful Oz. Uh speaking of the great and powerful Oz, do you know who was the first choice to play the Wizard of Oz? I do not. Ed Wynn. Oh. Isn't that interesting? That would be a very different wizard. That would be a very different wizard. Yeah, he turned it down. And then they they were trying to cast W.C. Fields, but he was giving them all kinds of problems with his contract. So they were like, eh, we'll move on. And that's when they settled on Frank Morgan. But I thought that was so interesting. Like, Ed Wynn would completely change the tone of this final scene. Yeah, that would be so different. Mm -hmm. So different. I like Frank Morgan a lot. I can see him as Marvel and like the the guard and the driver. I can see all of that. But here at the end, it's a little too serious, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he he does his rewards to the Scarecrow and the Tin Man and the Lion. I love that he just has a stash of diplomas in a bag. He literally has like four diplomas <laughs> he just, just like, sitting pulls there. Pulls one out and hands it to the Scarecrow. And like, I guess, I guess these are better stand-in reward items than we get in the book. I guess. Yeah, because you couldn't do the whole sequence of like him taking off the wizard's head and stuffing it with bran and cutting open the Tin Man's chest. Uh, Like, I like the idea that he's just saying like, you already have what you need. You just need a symbol. Yes. Or you just need something that will remind you that you are, you know, worthy or whatever. So I like the diploma. I like the medal. I think the weird watch thing for the Tin Man is weird. Especially (laughs) because like... It's a little bit of a stretch. here's a diploma and gives him a diploma. Here's a medal, gives him a medal. And then says, you need a testimonial. And then gives him this like watch on a chain. And so if you're a small child watching this... I did not understand what that meant You'd be like, oh, that thing must be called a testimonial. (laughs) It's not... It's just a watch. Yeah. Like, it's a good visual. <laughs> yeah. But the choice of object, quote unquote, to give the Tin Man is odd. It just happens to be in the shape of a heart. Like, otherwise, yeah. it's just a clock. 
And so we're going to get in the balloon and we're going to take Dorothy home. Mm-hmm. But Toto goes and chases a cat. And I, I watched for it this time. And Oh, yeah. The Tin Man totally unwraps the rope. Like, they're very clearly, like, unwrapping the rope so that the thing can float away. <laughs> there is supposed to be. There was a line there that got cut where the wizard, like, tells them to unravel the ropes. But because the line got cut, it just looks like the Tin Man is, like actively letting the wizard like, leave, I want Dorothy which to stay I don't hate here. I don't hate that idea that like no, it's like anything I can do to keep Dorothy here <laughs> but she's we've got the scene with the goodbyes with the companions mm-hmm. is that before the wizard or is that before Glinda uh well so Glinda arrives now and so this is where she's telling Dorothy like you've had the power all, the, all along you wouldn't have believed me my note I know we talked about this already but my note was so she says she wouldn't have believed me. She had to find it out for herself. But she didn't. You just told her. Yeah. Like, Dorothy did not, like, she may have learned this lesson. She may not have learned this lesson. We've already discussed that. But what she didn't learn is the power of the shoes. She didn't learn that lesson no. for herself. You just told her. Yeah. You didn't tell her earlier because she hadn't done your dirty work yet. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Dorothy comes in. She gets rid of. The Witch of the East, the Witch of the West, and the Wizard. I just finished rereading the first Percy Jackson book because my theater company is doing the Percy Jackson musical this summer. Ooh, we auditioned in the week. that's exciting. So, yeah. So I just reread the first book so that I could, like, find little Easter eggs and things to work into the show. Mm-hmm. And one of the big things that they do with the Greek gods in that book is that the gods can't do anything against one another directly they have to go through like intermediaries which is why demigods are so important so it's like if if zeus wants to attack poseidon or hades wants to attack zeus they can't attack directly they can't like steal a symbol of power directly they have to send a human hero to do it and that was like the major vibe I got rewatching this movie from Glinda. <laughs> like this idea that she couldn't hurt the Witch of the West directly, but she could send somebody else to do it for her. Right, right. And the wizard as well. Probably the wizard more so. Yeah. And then we get to the goodbyes. <laughs> and every time she says to the Scarecrow, I think I'm going to miss you most of all, Scarecrow, I just sit there and go, rude. Well, this line is a relic of... Yes. A romance yes. that was initially written into the script between Dorothy and Hunk that then carried through to the Scarecrow. And then it was supposed to end with uh, Hunk telling Dorothy who was going to leave when she wakes up for – he was going to leave for agricultural college. And and so he makes Dorothy promise to write to him. Um, so that's why this line remains there. The Scarecrow is my favorite character. So I actually like this line. I like the idea that Dorothy, you know, bonded with him the most. And so well, it makes sense. she's she really going to miss him. She's with him the longest. He's been with her the longest. Also, of I course, just – yeah. I have to say how much I hate that – his name is Hunk and not Huck. Just make his name Huck. Huck, yeah. I guess that would have worked. Hate, I hate that his name is Hunk. It never bothered just... me. Well, it didn't bother me because I learned his name Hunk years before I ever learned the way that we use the word Hunk today. Oh, and I'm sure it's an evolution of language. Yeah, like, I yeah. doubt that in 1939, Hunk meant the same thing that it means now. Right. Just like I tell people 
when we watch Daddy Long Legs the musical that back when that book was written, the term daddy used by oh, a young yeah. girl to a an older male who is financially supporting her didn't mean that term the way that it means it today. Right. It still makes us as modern viewers slightly uncomfortable, but you have to of think course. about the context. Like, it didn't yeah. mean this same thing back then. But yeah, so we get the goodbyes, and then she clicks her heels together three times, and she wakes up back in bed with her family around her, and you were there, and you were there. And when she's as she's waking up in the transition, you can hear the music plays Home Sweet Home. Mm -hmm. It plays like Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Plays like home. Um Yeah, I will say that this is the fastest costume change. I've ever had to do in my life. I've done many fast costume changes, but getting the the boys out of their scarecrow, tin man, and lion costumes and into farmhand costumes takes some effort. It is a fast, believe that. fast turnaround. And the scarecrow is not even the worst of them. Like the, the tin man has it the worst, I think. All that silver makeup. Also, in the musical version, you sometimes, depending on the script, you do find out that Miss Gulch died in the tornado. She got. She got struck by a falling telephone pole. How horrifying. I know. I know. I, I kind of like that we don't return to Miss Gulch. Like, we we satisfied that conflict through the witch. Yeah. But this is where we get what we talked about earlier, this message of, like, I went looking for my dreams outside of myself or whatever. And it's it's just an awful message. And she says it wasn't enough to just want to go back to Henry and M. And I want to know why. Like, I want to know why that wasn't enough to send mm. her home in the world of Oz. Like, why could she only go home once she decided that she never wanted to leave it again? I don't know. I I really think this moral is shoehorned in. I, I don't think they thought that much about it. Like no, I said, famously, I the agree. script was, they went through many, many versions. There are tons of cut scenes that I, I, can, I can list. So I, I think it's just... It's just kind of there. I think it's one of those things that like kind of sounds good on a surface level reading. But once you actually start to like get into it, then you have that realization of like, oh, no, this actually isn't great. But it's not really the focal point. No, no. And that's The Wizard of Oz. That's The Wizard of Oz. I do have for you. You have for me. A mini version of Drew's Theme Park Corner. Hey, Disney has never done The Wizard of Oz. They've done like Return to Oz and Oz the Great and Powerful. They've done like other things, but they've never done a full version. However, when Hollywood Studios, what is now known as Hollywood Studios, first opened, it was MGM Studios. And so there were, uh, there was really only one nod to The Wizard of Oz. It does have two scenes in the great movie ride in Hollywood Studios. At first, you are in munchkinland and you have this whole stop where the driver interacts with the witch of the west animatronic and it's really fun and then you drive by a scene with dorothy the scarecrow the tin man and the lion looking off at the emerald city and dorothy in dorothy's animatronic was voiced by liza minnelli which was really cute but unfortunately that ride no longer exists so that's sad however in disneyland paris They have the Storybook Canal, which is a ride that originated in Disneyland. Basically, you're in a boat and you drive by, like, or you ride by 
little miniature sets of like the different castles and stuff from Disney movies. And the Paris version has the Emerald City as one of those. And it's not like they have the Scarecrow, Tin Man and Lion and Dorothy standing out in front of the, the Emerald City. But all of it is not designed after this movie. They look like they do in the books, which I thought was really interesting. And then also, last one, in North Carolina, there is the Land of Oz theme park. It's pretty small. I don't think there's any rides or anything, but they have all the characters and the Yellow Brook Road and a couple of sets. It's small, but it's very cute and creative. They have a fantastic uh, Instagram account, actually, where they post all kinds of cool pictures. Um, so that's it. That's Drew's little mini theme park corner for this uh, for this movie. Well, I'm glad we didn't lose the theme park corner just because we're doing a yes. story that Disney hasn't done. Exactly. It's still there for us. Still iconic to the podcast. Yes, yes. So let's talk about our criteria for this story. Yeah, let's do it. So our first criteria is to define and explore your version of Oz. I think especially visually, this version of Oz is stunning. I agree. And absolutely beautiful and iconic. Hey. Hey. <laughs> I actually like that we don't explore Oz any further than we do because the book obviously has all of these extra scenes that this movie just streamlines by cutting rivers and colitis and field mice and hammerheads and dainty Chinatowns and all these things all get cut. And I think that is to this movie's benefit. Like it is so good that it's streamlined. So I don't need to see them explore Oz other than visually what I want is a very distinct visual. Obviously they nailed that. (laughs) Yeah. And we explore the parts of Oz that are important to the story. Yes, exactly. All that stuff got cut because it can be cut. It doesn't really contribute to the journey yeah so i think they knocked this one out of the park i'm with you our second criteria is to develop the witch or someone as an adversary again i think this movie does this very well it does listen am i 100 on the glinda is villain train yes i am however the intention of the film was the witch of the west and i think that they enhance her role in the story wonderfully mm-hmm. by giving her this connection to the witch of the east so that the defeat of the witch of the east is a personal attack also on her right and by giving her this desire like dorothy has these shoes she wants the shoes so she's chasing her through the whole film that is one of the smartest choices they made yes i agree with you even just putting her in munchkin land if you had if you didn't have her throughout the movie just Introducing her in Munchkinland would improve this element. However, they they went the extra step and included yes. her throughout the movie, as you should. But um, yes. I think even the bare minimum would have been an improvement. I will also say, final thought on Glinda. I think she gets away with it because the movie is presented as a dream, right? Yes, if this I was. Agree a real land that we saw Dorothy go to as it is in any other version, I would be behind Glinda as the villain. But because it's a dream and these are not actual like political consequences that that are being faced, Glinda gets away with it, with being a good guy. And our third criteria is to give Dorothy a character arc that is fit for your modern audience. Modern being like at the time that it came out. So do we think that Dorothy's character arc fits for a 1930s audience? 
I think at least they gave her a character arc. Yeah. Like, they introduced a point of conflict and contention in her real world. Yes. That she grew from. It's there. And it's there more prominently than it is in the book. Yeah. I think, obviously, as you look through Wizard of Oz adaptations through the last century since this movie came out, we're going to see this third criteria point get stronger and stronger. But at least this movie, like, gave us a baseline. Yeah. Dorothy gets a personality from the get-go. Like, from the first shot of the movie, Dorothy has a stronger personality than she has at any point in the book. And there's a conflict. There's something she wants. There's something that's in her way. There's something she has to overcome. And so that's an arc. Exactly. I think it could be stronger, but I think for this starting point, it's a good introduction. Yeah, exactly. Next week, we will be looking at The Wiz, the super soul musical Wonderful Wizard of Oz, which is a Broadway musical from 1975, I believe. So we'll be looking at the original musical, as well as the movie version starring Diana Ross and Michael Jackson, as well as the Wiz Live that happened a few years ago, which I quite enjoyed. So I am looking forward to that. Me too. This is a cultural phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And I will talk about this more next week, but this is a show that should never be performed by white people. Agreed. Ever. (laughs) Ever. And I'll get into that in more detail next week. Oh, boy. uh, Oh, boy. That sentence needs to be aimed very specifically at a theater in my area. Mm -hmm. Probably most of the Midwest, to be honest. Uh Someone needs to tell these high school directors, you need to look at who you have available Uh to perform the show before you select the show. Yeah, because there is a there's a version of the Wiz for white people. What? It's called the Wizard of Oz. Exactly. Yes. And also, you can cast black people in The Wizard of Oz as well. And, and people of color, indigenous you can also people, cast they can all play the these characters without doing The Wiz. 100%. Because you should only do The Wiz if you have the appropriate yes. cast. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Uh, but in the meantime, we would love to connect with you further. And as we said at the beginning of this episode, we have a Patreon now. Yay. So if you head over to patreon.com slash of slippers and spindles, you will find us. We would love to have your support. We'd love for you to join our community. If you want to join that community, but you aren't in a position where you can financially support the podcast, that is absolutely fine. You can also hang out with us at our Facebook page of slippers and spindles or on our Instagram of slippers and spindles. And you can also help us out for free by just leaving a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or just by subscribing. That helps us out as well. So thank you all so much for listening. We will see you next week. Bye, friends. Bye. What's on the cover? That's the question. Uh, It's not the movie tie-in edition. Well, well, good. It's, is it the um, is it the anniversary edition or is it the one with like the dominoes on the cover? Give me a second. Let me just go find out. Hold on. The anniversary edition of the book thief is one of the most beautiful books I've ever seen in my life, and I own it. I own three copies of the book thief, uh, because I love the book thief deeply and dearly. It's the dominoes. It's the domino cover. Yeah, is that That's good? That's the classic U.S. cover. Yeah, yeah, it's fine.